This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Could the war in Ukraine be the first step on a pathway that leads us to nuclear war? I'm Zach Beecham, and I write for Vox about democracy and global politics. And today I'm your host for a special series on Vox Conversations, The War in Ukraine Explained. In this four-part series, we're going to attempt to bring clarity to one of the biggest and most confusing political events of our lifetime. This week, for part three, we're going to discuss nuclear weapons, how likely it is that they get used, what could cause a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia to happen, and what we could do to prevent this potentially apocalyptic event. My guest to help us understand this all is Jeff Lewis, the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. He is the founder of the Arms Control Wonk blog and one of my favorite commentators on nuclear issues anywhere. Uh, we've been internet friends for a really long time, and it's really great to, to be able to bring Jeff onto the show and, and talk to him about, frankly, one of the very scariest aspects of an already scary situation. Jeff Lewis, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. So let's start with the big question. <sighs> Given the current military situation, how likely is it that Russia resorts to nuclear weapons in any way, shape, or form in its conflict with the Ukrainians? I mean, this is like a good news, bad news answer. I think the good news is it's very, very, very unlikely. But the bad news is that the likelihood is not zero, and it's probably higher than it needs to be. So let's unpack both halves of that. I'll start with the reassuring one first, right? So when, when we say the likelihood is very low, even if the Russians start losing, right? Like the scenario most people outline of nuclear use in this conflict is that Ukraine continues its, its frankly stunning battlefield military performance and that Russia, in order to stave off a humiliating defeat, being run out of the country basically entirely, even losing the control of Ukrainian territories it had prior to the current war, ends up firing a nuclear weapon, specifically a nuclear weapon called a tactical nuclear weapon, which is a much smaller and, and well, more targeted nuclear explosion against Ukrainian forces to try to turn the tide of the war back in their favor. That's very scary sounding, but can you walk me through why you don't think it's particularly likely? There are a couple of reasons I don't think it's terribly likely. One is that the Russians have said that's not their policy. Now, do I believe everything Vladimir Putin says? No. 
But when Russian experts, academics, and government officials are asked about the conditions under which Russia would use a nuclear weapon, they always say the same thing, which is that they would only initiate the use of nuclear weapons if they were facing a conventional defeat that threatened the existence of the Russian state. So for them, I think this is a capability that they hold in reserve for the rainiest of rainy days. Now, Putin could change his mind, right? I mean, it's a dictatorship, and when leaders get locked into festering conflicts that drag on forever, invariably, some jerk is going to suggest that nuclear weapons offer a way out. The second reason I don't think it's terribly likely is that there is no way in which I can see a use of a nuclear weapon somehow getting Putin out of this danger. I can't see it winning the war for him. And so it's it's hard to understand what they would do with a nuclear weapon that would result in a tangibly different outcome. So it's not how they talk about nuclear weapons, and it doesn't make a lot of sense for them. But having said that, that doesn't mean that there are no risks. It doesn't mean that there aren't ways that things could go wrong, and there, there are definitely things I am worried about. But just that simple idea of he wakes up and thinks, this is a way for me to escalate out of this crisis, that I'm feeling at the moment fairly confident is very unlikely. So when you say it wouldn't be very useful, and I want to return to the point about some jerk in a second, because that has a lot of rich historical resonance, including in the U.S., to talk about, right? So, But by that, do you mean that basically nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, this, this subset of nukes, right, that are designed for battlefield use, they are supposed to target large concentrations of enemy forces, right? Like, say, a, a really large group of armor that's moving in a particular direction. Or maybe a, a military base, right, that's in an inconvenient or, or dangerous location. But your analysis, if I'm understanding it properly, is that the Ukrainians— it feels weird, by the way, talking about this so bloodlessly. Like, we're talking about the use of nuclear weapons, and it's just—I I know I'm interrupting myself, but it's there's something morally chilling, and I know this is sort of part and parcel of the nuclear discourse, but I was just speaking casually about this use of a massive weapon on, on potentially thousands of people, one that could irradiate a large portion of Ukrainian territory— they wouldn't be contemplating doing this because the Ukrainians aren't really fighting like that, if I understand your argument properly. Yeah, I think that's about right. In terms of the bloodlessness of our conversation, this is a real problem in our strategic discourse because we want to think about things clearly, but at the same time, it becomes very hard to do that when you look at what using a nuclear weapon really means. So before the pandemic, every year I went to Hiroshima. I was on the governor of Hiroshima's roundtable on nuclear disarmament. And one thing I really do notice is that if you talk about the immense suffering caused by nuclear weapons in a meeting, people think you're some kind of crazed hippie. And it almost disqualifies you from participation in the conversation because you're the person talking about people dying in these really often very gruesome ways. And so it is very hard to have a calm, clear-headed conversation about the risks we're facing where you do integrate how horrible these weapons are. And I think one example of this is, you know, Russian tactical nuclear weapons, and there are a variety of different kinds of, of weapons that we put in that category, the explosive power of them is not small. They're extremely large. Tactical nuclear weapons, when their yields are smaller, what we mean is they're smaller than really big nuclear weapons, but they're still the size of the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. If you think about the bomb that went off in Beirut, not the bomb, but the ammonium nitrate that devastated that city, that was a few hundred tons of TNT equivalents. 
And Hiroshima was between 10 and 20 kilotons, right? Thousand tons. And that would be a tactical nuclear weapon today. You are in the hundreds of kilotons, the hundreds of thousands of tons uh, when you're talking about normal weapons. So that's one piece. You're really going to do a lot of damage. And it's very hard to imagine a situation where you kind of neatly pick out targets and also don't kill a lot of civilians. These two parts of the conversation are connected, right? The bloodlessness and the sort of civilian and general devastation and horror of nuclear weapons, and the reasons why it it actually doesn't make a lot of sense for Russia to use it right now. Your airfield example I I found really illuminating. If you want to take out an airfield, you can do that with conventional weaponry, right? You can do it with cruise missiles, you could do it with bombers, you could do it with artillery. There are all sorts of mechanisms that one can use to destroy that particular kind of target. It doesn't have the kind of wide-scale, catastrophic consequences that dropping a a Hiroshima bomb equivalent on Ukraine would have, which would, by its nature, lead to a a degree of damage in Ukraine that conventional weapons, again, by their nature, can't really match. Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the most insightful ways to think about this is if you know the cartoon XKCD by Randall Monroe. Oh, yeah, for sure. He wrote a book called Thing Explainer. And it's an effort to explain complicated ideas using, I think, only the maybe 500 most common words in English. And he has a whole page on a nuclear weapon. And the simple name he came up for it is city-burning machine. I think that kind of gets at their value. I do think that there are ways in which this conflict could escalate to nuclear weapons. So I'm not sanguine about the situation. I worry about it. I think we should be making good decisions that limit those pathways. But I just, I don't think we're in a situation at the moment where nuclear weapons could deliver Vladimir Putin a victory on the battlefield that his conventional army can't. And so it leads you to the second question, which is what gets us into this kind of escalatory mass slaughter situation? And I, I think that's a risk, but it's a different kind of risk. Right. I mean, as you mentioned, battlefield commanders have in the past, in past conflicts, advocated for bringing nuclear weapons to bear in situations where the war doesn't look like it's going so well. To me, the most resonant example is Douglas MacArthur really pushing Harry Truman during the Korean War for the use of nuclear weapons after Chinese intervention to try to turn the tide of the war. MacArthur was astonishingly insubordinate in doing this, right, in pushing for this. And it lost him his job as as theater commander in that conflict. Are there other stories like this in maybe both U.S. and Soviet history? Because nuclear powers, I think it's only a select number of circumstances where they've even contemplated using nukes on non-nuclear opponents, right? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that the Korea example, it wasn't just MacArthur. So after MacArthur was relieved of command, General Clark also wanted to use nuclear weapons. And the argument for using nuclear weapons in the latter half of the Korean War, after MacArthur had departed, was that the Chinese and the Soviets, uh, for a period of time, were providing air cover in North Korea to the North Korean and Chinese forces. And those air bases were basically sanctuaries. So there was this unimpeded flow of logistical assistance, food, ammunition, And then there was this air cover. And so the profitable use of nuclear weapons in Korea would have been against targets in China, particularly the airfields and the war-supporting industries. Again, it gets back to the city-burning machine idea. There was not a lot of sense that you could use these against dug-in troops in a way that would be effective. 
but there was a sense that you could use them against supporting infrastructure that was otherwise really hard for you to access. So there are escalation pathways. That remains as true, that analysis today, as in the 1950s, right? Our modern nuclear weapons suffer from the same limitations to a degree, even though they've been designed, you know, quote-unquote battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons, for a use in a more targeted way. There's a little bit of a misconception, I think, about tactical nuclear weapons. So, for example, in the U.S. stockpile, we have the B-61 gravity bomb. And there are different modifications of it, some of which are strategic and some of which are tactical. But it's the same bomb. And what really distinguishes it is how individuals plan to use it. The explosive power is still quite significant. One thing that you sometimes hear people say is they talk about low-yield bunker busters. Not a thing. Bunker busters are high-yield. When the U.S. was looking at making a new bunker buster in the Bush administration, one of the bombs under consideration was a megaton in yield. So that's a million tons of TNT. It was the largest bomb in our arsenal. And that would have been, in some sense, tactical, but it would have been enormous. And honestly, what the Bush administration would often say is that they wanted to make a lower-yield version of that bomb. But it wasn't low. It was just lower. It's a little bit like when you pull some allegedly healthy product off the shelf, and it says, lower in sugar. And then you flip it over, and it's like, oh, wow, that's three times the daily recommended amount. Oh, so so you're saying they're like the sweet potato fries of nuclear weapons. That's right. They're totally the sweet potato fries of nuclear weapons. Like, oh, it's healthy for me. No, it's not. You know, with that necessary background in mind, right, it doesn't seem like you're envisioning a scenario where there's a Russian MacArthur, right, who goes up to Vladimir Putin and says, it's it's time. You got to go. Like, what, what do we know about the Russian military and the way that it thinks about nuclear weapons, state of doctrine and otherwise? Do you think there's a serious chance that there might be somebody in there who's really trying to press for nuking the Ukrainians? I think the correct answer is we don't know. No matter what policies you have and no matter what people in the chain of command think, you have a mercurial decision maker at the top who's insulated and isolated, and he's surrounded by very specific personalities, and I don't know enough about those personalities. What I would say is that I would separate that humility in trying to understand how they think about this problem from the Washington debate. Because the Russian position, as it's written down, is, I think, extremely clear. And it's very straightforward, and it's not hard to interpret. But we have a debate in Washington about whether that's really their strategy or whether they have a secret strategy that involves them initiating the use of nuclear weapons, which, by the way, is the same argument we've been having in the United States since the 1950s. There are people who say that regardless of what the official Russian policy is, that they would do something called escalate to de-escalate, that they would use a single nuclear weapon as a demonstration to compel us to stop. And those are the same people who say, we need our own little nuclear weapon, so if they use one, we can send our own little signal back, and they're very confident that won't get out of control. So I don't really know. I'm deeply skeptical of the American argument because it seems like it's like a thing you invent in grad school more than it is anything I can see tied to the Russians. But like, it is a group of people. And without knowing those individual people, and honestly, they may not know themselves that well, you don't really know what decision they're going to make when things get really tense. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so cautious when it comes to signaling with nuclear weapons, making nuclear threats, relying on nuclear weapons, is that I do think that there is this ultimately unknowable 
risk in the moment of decision. Do we know how the Russian ordering of nuclear weapons works, right? Is it like the U.S. where there are these formal rules surrounding the way that the weapons are used, even though the president can basically order nuclear use unchecked? Or is it just sort of even simpler, like Vladimir Putin pushes the button? So we know a little bit about the Russian process. Ultimately, the decision is vested in the president. It's Putin's call. There is some language about Putin working with the military to form the order. And we don't know whether that's they have a right to have opinions or whether they're just there to like type up the order as it is given. It's very telling about the Russian system that they don't really contemplate that there would be any disagreement. And we know something about the command and control structure they built because the Soviet Union and now Russia are very worried about what I would call decapitation. They're extremely worried, not that the U.S. could destroy all of their missiles and bombers and submarines, but that we could kill their leadership so that they could not give an order to their missiles and their bombers and their submarines. And so the Russians have partially automated that process and do appear to have some ability to devolve launch authority so that they have some confidence they could retaliate in the event of an attack. I I say all that to say, I think in the normal run of events, it's Putin's decision. Putin looks at Gerasimov and Shoigu and says, let's do it. And their job is to make sure that that order is presented to the military in a way that the military understands and can respond. There is also a lot of indication that they have the ability to delegate some of this, that Putin can say, you know, next week could be the week. And here is the delegation in advance. And if I'm dead and you don't hear from me, go for it. That's one of those setups that doesn't make me feel great. Shoigu and Karasimov, to be clear, are the defense minister and the chief of the Russian general staff. Yeah, that's right. Right. But one thing that really struck me while I was just listening to you talk about the way in which the Russian system is designed is that the entire structure of it is built around the idea of conflict with the United States, which shouldn't surprise anybody. We know that nuclear doctrine emerged out of the Cold War, right? And and pretty much all of our thinking about nuclear weapons is inflected by that experience, and the U.S. and Russian systems were designed against each other. But it also indicates to me that when, at the very beginning of this conversation, you said the risk is not zero, that when that risk starts to tick upwards from zero, it's because the U.S. and Russia are becoming more likely to come into direct conflict with each other, by which I mean not that at the current moment, right now, that conflict is becoming more likely, but rather in the event that conflict between the two sides becomes more likely nuclear escalation becomes concomitantly more likely. That is the scenario under which things could get really, really scary, right? That's exactly the scenario. I think people live sometimes in a little fantasy land about this because it's better to live in a fantasy land than the actual uh, nightmarish hellscape in which we do exist. But the nuclear weapons that the United States and Russia possess, those are real weapons. They don't exist on paper. They're actual physical destructive devices. And they have maintenance plans and people who take care of them and bombers and missiles and submarines to deliver them. And there are operational plans to use them. There is a sense I get from some people where they think of nuclear war as this kind of weird unreality. But we spend tens of billions of dollars every year, and so do the Russians, to credibly be able to conduct a nuclear war in a few minutes' notice. The idea that this is somehow 
a very distant prospect, I don't think that sits comfortably with the reality, which is there are people whose job is to get up every day and be ready to turn the keys. And so, like, these things are designed to be used. And there are scenarios that exist in which they are supposed to be used. And so I I think when you start imagining a direct conflict between the United States and Russia, that's it. That's the case. Suddenly these are plausible resorts. And you have to, I think, be very worried that a direct conflict between the United States and Russia necessarily entails some risk that someone along the way is going to pick up the book and say, ah, you know, this is the time. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll have more of my conversation with Jeff Lewis on the nuclear stakes of the war in Ukraine right after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Let's talk about how the current conflict, as it is being conducted, could lead us to this nightmarish point where basically all of us die. Right. And and I, I want to be clear about the stakes throughout this conversation because it is literally apocalyptic. Right now, right as I alluded to at the beginning, the U.S. and and NATO in general has had this very strict policy about direct intervention in the Ukrainian conflict for exactly the reasons you described, right? It's just the Biden administration could not be clearer on this point, that they don't want World War III, they don't want a nuclear war, and they are doing everything they can to help the Ukrainians without raising that risk. That could change, and that's the real thing. And I think that the thing that keeps me up at night is that could change Due to the actions of either side, one thing I don't think is likely that people have raised the possibility of, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, is that continued U.S. aid to Ukraine 
is going to lead Russia to get really mad and kill a bunch of American soldiers in retaliation. We know from the Cold War and from other proxy conflicts that great powers can aid their enemies. We're very comfortable with these things, and they've had a very low risk of escalating in the past. That scenario doesn't worry me as much. But legally speaking, it's not out of the question that Russia could make a determination or some Russian commander that a NATO depot that is housing a ton of weapons that are about to go to the Ukrainians in Poland, right, that that's fair game and attack it. How do you conceptualize that avenue for pulling in NATO? Because once there's an attack there and the NATO charter says that's an attack on all, right? And all of a sudden, like the entirety of the alliance gets pulled into the Ukraine war. So I think smart people look at that scenario and realize that like most things in life, particularly when you are dealing with other people, in this case, an adversary, there are no bright lines and clear rules. You're running some risks and you're making judgments and your judgments will not always turn out to be right. And so most people I know who really think seriously about this tread very cautiously around the issue of escalation, not doing things that would necessarily escalate. Now, Our nuclear weapons deter Russia just as theirs deter us. So we are deterred from becoming directly involved in the conflict because we are afraid of escalation. I believe that the reason the Russians are not striking arms shipments on the NATO side of the border is precisely because they're deterred by our nuclear weapons and that same fear of escalation. But to be clear, we're not neutral. I don't believe there's any legal reason the Russians couldn't choose to start striking lethal military assistance. And indeed, you know, when the United States was stuck in South Vietnam, we were very willing to expand the war into Cambodia precisely to interdict shipments of arms and and other supplies to the, the Viet Cong. So when I look at the scenario, both sides are worried about escalation and seem to be holding back. And the scenarios that I worry about are where that sense of restraint breaks down. And obviously, the canonical example is when people say that the United States should use combat aircraft to establish air superiority over Ukraine. I'm I'm not even going to call it a no-fly zone because I think that's deeply misleading because no-fly zones existed in places where the other side really couldn't fly very much. This is a different thing. This would be starting an air war over Ukraine with the Russians. You know, in that scenario, just like when the Chinese and and small number of Soviets were providing air cover to the North Koreans, it becomes very appealing to the Russians to think, well, you're here now directly. Like, I have every right to hit those air bases in Poland. And that's the situation that worries me that it could get out of control. It could get out of control even if it's simply conventional. Once you get in the habit of hitting each other's territory with conventional weapons, maybe you acclimate to that idea, right? Maybe you get more comfortable with that. It's a funny thing because whenever I talk to people about this, there's always this kind of belief that we can always pull back at the last minute, that the people in charge are just superb at brinksmanship, that they have this incredible feel for the situation and that they would know at the last minute. And it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, like from the people who brought us Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan? Like, no. No, they have no idea what they're doing. Like, they are just like you and me, and which is to say, making it up as they go along. And so whenever I hear about like, well, it would stay limited, I think my answer to that is probably because that's what everybody wants. But 
my experience with every country when they are operating in a crisis is that there's a lot that's left to chance. I mean, this is true at all stages of the conflict, right? So one thing that we've been seeing are increasing reports of mass Russian atrocities on the ground in Ukraine. Truly gut-wrenching, horrific scenes of mass murder, torture, or sexual violence as a weapon of war. More or less the worst stuff that you can think of in the context of a conflict. And even evidence, you know, I've been I've been talking to a lot of scholars of war crimes because um, my job is really uplifting. And they are unclear for the first time on the question of whether this constitutes genocide, targeting the Ukrainians, with some even arguing that there is reason to think that we should call this genocide, given the stated Russian war aims and the nature of the atrocities. And when you start talking about that, I worry, worry is, it's such a weird word to use here, because I, your worry should be reserved for the victims of the atrocities. But at the same time, I worry that the more this feels like a situation where we have no moral choice but to get more deeply involved, the more the logic of intervention, the one that we've become more comfortable with in the West when dealing with much lesser powers than Russia, becomes overwhelming. I mean, how do you say we shouldn't stop somebody from conducting a genocide, even if the consequences risking nuclear war, right? It's not a guarantee of nuclear war, but it's a risk of it. And so the worse and worse the Russian campaign appears to get, especially if you start seeing something like chemical weapons use or, or the construction of concentration camps housing Ukrainian civilians, neither of which are out of the question. Does the nuclear fear, the balance of terror still keep a lid on, or do we start seeing a difference in the way this is talked about and discussed? I think the hardest part of this realization about nuclear weapons is embodied in the question you're asking. I hate nuclear weapons. I hate nuclear weapons because they are indiscriminate and they murder people in the most horrific ways. But they also create an inescapable geopolitical logic, which is no matter how much you hate the other country with nuclear weapons, you suddenly have a shared interest in mutual survival. And so what that often means No, what that almost always means, more than often, is that when you enter into a mutual deterrence relationship, you are giving up the ability, honestly, to really be able to do things about the horrible way that those countries treat their citizens or that they treat their neighbors. And that sucks. Like, one of the many reasons I hate nuclear weapons, that's part of it. And so, for me, what is so profound about the nuclear age is... We hated the Soviet Union, right? We didn't like what it did to its citizens. We didn't like what it did to countries in Eastern Europe. We did not like the violence it exported. And yet there is this intimacy in a nuclear deterrence relationship where you are accepting the other side as it is, and you are trusting them to be rational and always make the right decision. And like that's why people hate nuclear deterrence. You know, I think if you ask an average American about a nuclear deterrence relationship, what they might like is the idea that we're strong. But when you really explain to them the mechanics of what it means to be in that relationship, they hate it. And honestly, it's why I think Reagan's idea of a space-based missile defense system, which was technologically infeasible and probably would have made things worse rather than better, but I think the reason it was so appealing was it was almost a science fiction way to escape the ugly reality of what nuclear weapons make one accept. I always find this funny because if you ask the folks at STRATCOM, So U.S. Strategic Command, which is in charge of U.S. nuclear weapons, they have this chart that they put up all the time. And what it does, it shows all the people who were killed in wars up to World War II 
and it shows all the people who've been killed in wars after World War II. Now, the chart is bullshit. It's not an accurate chart, but whatever. It's a piece of propaganda. But what they use it to do is to show that nuclear deterrence works. The problem is they don't really believe that, because if you really believe that, then you'd want Iran to have nuclear weapons. You would want North Korea to have nuclear weapons, right? And you would say, well, then that solves the issue of conflict. Yes, nuclear weapons work in that they create deterrence, but what that does is it gives states a certain sovereignty and authority over themselves and the regions they consider important where they're willing to run risks. And that can often be extremely lethal for average people. So, you know, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't love deterrence. I recognize that it works, but I think we're not honest about what we pay for that. Yeah, what you're describing is is called the stability-instability paradox, and it's one of, I think, the most profound theories in political science. But you also, I think, were pointing to something more subtle there, which is that even on its own terms, deterrence can fail, which doesn't mean it does. Like, basically every situation where it's been tested, it has worked, but it's a very small N, right? A small number of cases where we've had a real risk of direct conflict between nuclear-armed powers. And some of them have gotten damn close, right? The Cuban Missile Crisis is obviously the most famous one, but there are all sorts of stories that we can go through. But now we're talking about a conflict in which there are reasons on both the Russian and the American side to get pulled into this conflict. And now it does, as we've been saying, it seems likely that both sides will continue to resist that logic, but likely is not inevitable. And in a world where the two sides really do start shooting directly and NATO is in some way, shape, or form pulled into the conflict, that triggers the part of Russian strategic nuclear doctrine that you talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, which is that the doctrine is to use nuclear weapons if there is an existential threat to the Russian state. And NATO, to be clear, vastly outclasses Russia militarily. A conventional war between these two sides, take nuclear weapons away, there's no question that the Russians would lose. And there was not much question before the Ukraine war, and there's certainly not much question after their performance in this conflict, given what we know about NATO military capabilities. So that, to me, is where things get really, really, really scary, right? How do you think once in in the hypothetical that somehow NATO is pulled into the Ukraine conflict, once that happens, how do we think about the risks of a wider escalation and whether or not those can be contained? Well, I think the biggest challenge, if the United States and NATO are directly involved in the conflict, is how do we convince Putin Again, nuclear weapons are an intimate relationship with someone you hate. But how do you convince Putin that any military action is fundamentally limited and not aimed at removing him from power? The challenge we have is, one, he seems fairly paranoid at this point. Maybe paranoid is unfair, but he certainly believes that the West has it out for him. No, I I don't think it's unfair. And we have seen the president of the United States you know, where he announced, my God, how can this man stay in power? If the United States were conducting conventional military operations to push Russia out of Ukraine, what we don't know is if the Russian army, for example, were to start to collapse, at what point would Putin believe that this offensive was going to go all the way to Moscow? When would he make that decision? And you can you can sort of come up with your own reasons, like, well, maybe if we only stayed in Ukraine, or maybe if we only stayed in Belarus, or maybe if we only stayed within 20 kilometers of the border. Sure. But whatever you make up, no matter how clever you think it is, you have no guarantee that Putin knows that. And you have no guarantee that he doesn't misperceive what you're doing, or that he doesn't think that your military offensive, even if it's limited, is designed to create domestic unrest that will cause him to topple. And so you just cannot know at what point 
he will conclude this has become that existential threat for which these weapons are designed. And so that, when you ask how I think about escalation, what I think about is fundamentally, when would Putin use nuclear weapons? And then I complicate that by asking, how would he know it was time? And I think the answer is, it's going to be kind of a kind of a guess. You know, he's going to make a gut decision in the moment. And if you're the kind of person who feels like gambling modern civilization on kind of how he feels in the moment, then like, good for you. But I like my kids. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm strongly with you on the let's try to preserve humanity side of the ledger here. I mean, I know from looking at Twitter, it doesn't always <laughs> seem like a good idea. Is there any kind of policy or theorizing that the U.S. government has surrounding what you do if a legitimate military target is hit with nuclear weapons? Not like Washington, but like, you know, a NATO airbase or something like that. That would be fair game in military terms, but it is crossed the line by using nukes. So we have something called declaratory policy, which is how we talk about when we would use nuclear weapons. And the answer is that's certainly a situation in which the president would consider using nuclear weapons. And we want countries to believe that we would use nuclear weapons in that scenario. In fact, people like me, have argued that our language about when we would use nuclear weapons is too permissive and gives rise to the potential for serious misunderstanding. And so I'm someone who thinks the U.S. should narrow the scope of when it talks about when it would use nuclear weapons. And when I make that proposal, the counterargument is something like this. Well, then Russia will feel emboldened to conduct such an attack. So U.S. policy is to give the president the option of responding with nuclear weapons to an attack like that And I would say the style of declaratory policy is to strongly imply that the president would use nuclear weapons in a scenario like that. Although, you know, obviously on the day it happens, the decision is going to be a very stressful and one-off decision that is very difficult to predict. And then once we're in that realm, if the U.S. does in fact retaliate with nukes, then it becomes a question of what does Russia do? And I mean, this is the stuff that nuclear theorizing and and research has been made of for decades now. It's like, how do you think about how likely that sort of thing is to escalate? And and we could go down that rabbit hole, but really what we're doing is guessing because it's never happened, right? We're we're using game theoretical models and sort of psychological profiling of the different leaders in question to try to make some kind of educated conclusion. But really what it suggests to me is, given the stakes, you just can't risk that. There is no credible world in which you want to be betting the future of humanity on this kind of thing. I like to say that our entire scholarship on nuclear weapons is permanently biased by survivor bias, which is to say we are alive to be having academic conferences. We are alive to be having this podcast. And so... The problem is, because we are alive to be talking about this, we don't have the case studies of the people who fail. And so we fundamentally don't know whether our ideas about escalation and our models are right or whether we were just lucky in the Cold War. And, I, you know, that's ultimately down to your personality. You know, if you listen to a harrowing tale of the Cold War, some people go, right then, it all turned out okay, safeguards worked, people pulled back at the last moment, that's awesome. I am someone who looks at those stories and thinks about the human beings I actually know, you know, the deeply flawed, frail, absurd human beings who are myself and my friends, and I I see them as warnings. 
But ultimately, that's a personality type, right? Do you draw comfort from our successful navigation of brinksmanship from the past, or do you draw warnings for the future? And I'm a, I'm a warning guy. Okay, we're going to take one last short break, but stay with us for the rest of my conversation with Jeff Lewis. Coming right up. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One thing that was a real feature of the Cold War was that intimacy that you were talking about a second ago, right? They, the U.S. and the Soviets talked a lot. What do we know about the efforts at communication that are being done right now to make sure that none of these dire scenarios we've been talking about happen, that there isn't a Russian cross-border strike, that the U.S. doesn't cross Russian red lines in terms of the kinds of support that it provides to the Ukrainians. Are there good communication mechanisms in place? So I don't know. My sense is there are not. That's bad. The challenge with that is that the Defense Department hates that if you say that. So one of the big debates that we've been having is, you know, the U.S. is going to build a new ICBM. Intercontinental ballistic missile. Right. It's a missile that can go from the United States all the way to either Russia or China. The U.S. wants to build it because we want to target things in China. The problem is you'd have to fly over Russia. And so there are a lot of us who are like, you know, I see what you're saying. But on the other hand, are you really confident that when Russian radars see a couple hundred ICBMs coming out of the Great Plains flying toward Russia only to go over Russia and toward China, like, are they going to be chill? Are you really going to be able to convince the Russians it's not an attack? And the answer one gets back is very hostile, right? It's you don't know what you're talking about, and it's kind of angry. It's not reassuring in the sense of we have nine phone calls a week, and 
we deconflict this and that. You know, the, 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 you don't get that kind of answer. You get a very defensive answer. And I, you know, I will admit this is my own interpretation. But when I see that defensiveness on the part of officials, it seems to me like someone who wants to make a conversation go away rather than the reaction I would expect if they had good communication, where they would be like, oh, no, actually, it's cool. Millie, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Shoigu, maybe they, like, play Fortnite together or something. And it's like, no, 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 it's cool. They're in regular contact. But they didn't have kind of an answer like that. Sort of makes me wonder how we got here, right? How did we get to a point where communication is deteriorated? Because it used to be better, is my understanding. And not only that, right, there's just, like, a whole series of developments in arms control between the U.S. and Russia from the end of the Cold War to where we are now, much of which was positive. There has been a significant decline in nuclear stockpiles since the Cold War peak. In brief, I know I'm asking you to summarize a long, long history in a very short period of time, but tell me how the U.S.-Russia nuclear relationship got to what seems right now to be a little bit of a scarier point than it was in, I don't know, insert your favorite late 20th century date where things were better looking. I mean, I think the story is pretty simple, which is that With Gorbachev and Yeltsin, the U.S. had a historic opportunity. And we took some of that opportunity. We reduced numbers and made some modest improvements. But fundamentally, we didn't change our relationship with Russia. We just left it in place with lower numbers. But we we still have, you know, more than a thousand nuclear weapons on day-to-day alert pointed at them, and they have the same at us. We didn't address any of the other big problems And that was a choice. Bill Clinton actually told Boris Yeltsin, who was pressing him to do more to change the relationship, that things like arms control weren't as important as their personal relationship. And it would just be fine as long as the two of them were running things and they, you know, it's the most frustrating thing to read. There's a transcript of them talking. And and obviously I'm paraphrasing them, but you can see Yeltsin is like, we should get rid of the nuclear football. And Clinton is very much like, well, I, I don't want to do that, you know? Like, we're good. You and I, we don't have problems. We don't have to be worried about this. And of course, to me, the fundamental problem is we squander the opportunity to fundamentally change our relationship with Russia. And then their democracy fails, right? It fails in this catastrophic way where you get this authoritarian figure in the form of Putin. And so now you have failed to liquidate the Cold War legacy, and then now you have a guy who wants to re- <laughs> re-litigate the Cold War, right? You know, somebody who thinks, as Putin has said, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster in history. Putin was asked whether Gorbachev should have sent in the tanks in East Germany in 1989, and he would not answer because his answer was yes. So when you get a leadership now that is basically committed to reversing the post-Cold War settlement and attempt to reestablish its control over the countries around it to create a sphere of influence because we failed to change or alter that nuclear inheritance, it's always been sitting there like a loaded gun just for people to pick up again. And to me, that's, that's what this story is about. It's about us squandering a lot of opportunities in the late 80s, early 90s, and then fundamentally about the failure of democracy in Russia. So like all catastrophes, there was a lot of blame to go around. I mean, there was a moment in the late 2000s when things looked like they might be a little bit different, right? So a few things happened, right? First, Barack Obama was elected president. And Obama, at least before he became president, 
was very famous in the nuclear world for having a, a kind of anti-nuclear take, right? He really was somebody who seemed to believe the world would be better off with dramatically fewer or, or maybe no nuclear weapons at all. And then when he came into office, there was some acting on that policy, right? Culminating in the New START agreement between the U.S. and Russia, which is a major strategic arms limitation. And that all seemed pretty good, right? So is, is what happened as simple as um, Medvedev, who was in charge of Russia at that time, Putin was the prime minister rather than president during Medvedev's tenure, that he was given a little bit more of a, a, a sort of leash to run on. And then when Putin decided that he didn't like his experiment with putting somebody else in the nominal leader's chair, that he went back to his aggressiveness and the relationship deteriorated between the U.S. and Russia. That moment of nuclear optimism, was it just a casualty of Russian domestic politics or did something else happen there that led us to the point that we're at right now? I actually think that moment of nuclear optimism was misplaced. I was deeply skeptical of it. And Partly that reflects my sense that President Obama did not have a sincere interest in those issues. I think he found them useful in the campaign as a way to distinguish himself from Hillary Clinton. And I think he felt early on that they were a relatively easy way for him to deliver on some campaign promises, particularly by giving a, a speech in Prague where he said he wanted to seek the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. But the actual nuclear policy that the Obama administration pursued was quite continuous with what the Bush administration had pursued. And indeed, a number of the people that the president put in charge of his nuclear posture review had not voted for the president in the election. And so, you know, my experience just in a few meetings and interacting with people was that the Obama nuclear posture review as it was drafted by the Pentagon, could have been written by the Bush administration. And then it got a rewrite when it went to the White House, and they were like, oh, holy crap, that's not at all what the president wanted. But, you know, I think the decision to keep Secretary Gates, who, I, you know, I thought was a fine defense secretary, but didn't share the president's views. I think the decision to pick Secretary Clinton, I, 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 again, I think she's a fine secretary of state. I don't think she shared the president's stated views. And so at some point, you have to ask, were they really his views? He didn't seem to fight very hard for them. So my, my sense is that moment was misguided, and it was probably already too late. That the real window for changing our relationship with Russia was in the 1990s and in the very early 2000s. You know, maybe there was something that could have kept Putin from coming back. But I think Putin eventually got stuck in a viewpoint. And his viewpoint was the end of the Cold War was bad for the Soviet Union. And the way to restore Russia's greatness was a return to a kind of authoritarian state that built its security by subjugating its neighbors and controlling them. And I think once that happened, it was just too late, you know? One thing I would say is that we often neglect delayed effects in international relations. You know, sometimes you lose Putin, right? He, he goes off and he's on his path and there's no changing it. But you may not know that for five years. A as critical as I am about Barack Obama's tenure on nuclear weapons, and boy, am I critical, by the time Obama took office, I suspect it was too late. So with all that in mind, and now all of us knowing that the dangers of nuclear conflict are here to stay, what is to be done going forward? What can we possibly do, given this long historical error, as you put it, 
to lower the risk of you know another situation like this where both sides start to become antsy about nuclear use again in the future. That's actually plausible given the reality that we live in. I would say there are two things that we need to do. The first is don't die in a nuclear war. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. No matter how much we hate Putin, no matter how much we hate what he's doing, we can act wisely to avoid escalation pathways that lead us to catastrophe. And so that gives us a gift of time. The reality is that Vladimir Putin's not going to live forever. Joe Biden's not going to live forever. Neither of these men are likely to be alive in a decade. If they are alive, they're going to both be very old and probably not really in control. And so if we can survive long enough, even in an era in which arms control appears to be completely dead, there is always the prospect that you will have a new generation of leadership. And that new generation of leadership has the opportunity to look at the choices we've made and say like, gee, I don't like that. So, you know, very famously, we lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the consequence of that is not just the Johnson administration, but the Nixon administration, which is quite hawkish, realizes that the arms race is out of control. And, you know, it's Richard Nixon who signs the ABM Treaty, which limits missile defenses in the U.S. and the Soviet Union, something it's impossible to imagine a Republican doing today. But he does it. Now, we pretty quickly forget all those lessons, and then we run a bunch of risks again in the 80s because, you know, the humans are fun. But we do have that opportunity to make different choices, and I think we have to be optimistic that no matter how much you might look at Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban in Hungary and Modi in India and all of these fascists, right, they're not going to live forever. And so I am old enough that I remember the enormous explosion of democracies in the 1990s, which was awesome and amazing to live through. I'm living through the retrenchment now, and I I know that if I live long enough, there will again be opportunities to address some of these problems. So it's funny. It's it's both an optimistic and a pessimistic way to, to end this conversation, because on the one hand, nice to think that in the long run, things can get better. On the other hand, the basic upshot of what you're saying is we blew it, and now for the foreseeable future, at least, until there's no more Putin in power, we're going to have to live with the consequences of a much more nuclear, insecure world where we just try to muddle through and prevent the apocalypse. Let's focus on having a long run. <laughs> Jeffrey Lewis, as always, it is great talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. This is a real pleasure. Our special series, The War in Ukraine Explained, continues next week with its fourth and final part on how the war in Ukraine will shape the future of Europe. I'll be talking with Ivan Krastev, a political scientist, author, and the chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, Bulgaria. He's the co-author of The Light That Failed, a book on the collapse of democracy in the former communist states of Eastern Europe, and a leading commentator on European geopolitics. That'll be next Thursday, so make sure you're subscribed. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas, our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. 
We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could make better. If you have any ideas on these topics or for future guests or things to discuss, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations with my friend and yours, Sean Ailey. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.